This Dharma talk was recorded live at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. If you enjoy these talks and wish to support the temple and its offerings, please visit austinzencenter.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to the Zoom mirror assembly. I'm not sure I can see absolutely everybody, but uh, good to see many of you online and you can't see it but there's a full zendo and people in the in the foyer as well so it's uh it's so unpredictable i never know <laughs> and uh so i i um prepared this talk it's kind of, kind of going out on a limb a little bit because i just realized that in preparing it i was grappling with things that i've been thinking about or sitting with for really you know the last five years when I started formal practice. So um, my theme, in case you didn't know, is about light and dark, uh, especially in Zen teaching. Uh, but I'm going to kind of roam around the 2,500 years of Dharma as I go. And I hope you'll traipse along with me. And also, uh, really, you're traipsing around my own Wilderness, <laughs> my mind wilderness. So I hope you can follow where I go with this. Uh, and I hope at the end it will be of some benefit to you. And if you're brand new, how many people are new today? Oh boy, okay. So it may be very mysterious to you what I'm about to talk about, um, but maybe not, we'll see. You never know how things will strike people. <clears throat> so the thought of giving this particular talk and really, I wanted to focus on the dark or darkness uh, in the teaching, um, but light comes up with dark. So uh, I'm going to talk about both. <clears throat> but the thought about giving this talk really has taken shape pretty gradually. And um, I think I can trace it most, most directly back to a quote that I came across um, when I was serving as head student, what we call the Shuso at my uh, root temple, my original practice place in North Carolina, and that was seven years ago this summer. So this has been rattling around for a while. And it's a quote from Kazan Jokin, who's the co-founder of Soto Zen. And if you were uh, around when we had our five-day study session, study retreat a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kazan Jokin is the author and the compiler of the stories of enlightenment of our Zen ancestors, beginning with uh, Shakyamuni Buddha and uh, down to Dogen and his immediate successor. So we're talking 13th century Japan, just to orient you. Um, and the quote that kind of kicked this off for me is uh, what Keizan is recorded to have said when he experienced his own awakening and what we sometimes call enlightenment. I prefer awakening to enlightenment. No say something about that in a moment. I should say that although we call him the co-founder of our branch of Zen, together with Dogen, who is usually acknowledged as our main founder, you'll hear a lot about Dogen if you stick around here, um, Kazan and Dogen actually lived at different times, and uh, Kazan had a different teacher who appears in the story. That teacher is named Tetsu Gikai. And so there are two generations between Dogen and Kazan, but we honor them together as if they were uh, 
alive at the same time. And in a sense, they kind of were, <laughs> they kind of are. Anyway, it's a long time ago. <laughs> so here's the story. One time, one morning, Keizan, who was a monk, was listening to his teacher, Tetsu Gikai, who was giving a lecture as he did when he ascended the seat in the Dharma Hall, where lectures were, were mostly given. So it's a formal talk. And Tetsu Gikai cited a topic from another Zen master, Chinese master, named Zhao Chu. And what he said was, one's original or ordinary mind, as it really is, is the way. One's ordinary mind is the way. And in that mo moment, according to this version of the story, Kazan experienced a great waking up. And he didn't restrain himself, according to this version, and he just spoke up in the middle of the Dharma Hall. It's like one of you would suddenly say, I got it. <laughs> so Tetsu Gikai said, okay, what have you got? <laughs> and Kazan said, this is, his, this is the quote that, that started all this for me, black balls or a black ball runs through the dark night. This is kind of typically Chinese Zen. What does that mean? <laughs> and his teacher said, not clear, explain again. And then Kazan said, at the time of tea, I drink tea. At the time of rice gruel, I eat rice gruel. And his teacher said, okay. <laughs> at the time of tea, Latte, matcha lattes. Matcha, yeah, matcha of the water. Thank you. <laughs> see, see if I can stay glued to the cushion. <laughs> keep talking. Keep talking. No problem. <laughs> so black balls, black spheres, black round things, run through the dark night. Now there's some variations about. Uh, this encounter. There are different versions of the story. Another version has Kazan visiting his teacher privately, which is, you know, kind of the more usual thing, and not erupting spontaneously in the assembly of monks. Um, so there's a minor variation there. There's also an account uh, of a challenge that Gikai made earlier to Kazan. Gikai said, show me ordinary mind or something like that. Don't, you know, show it to me. And Kazan, like most of us, moved to speak, to say something. Right? When you're asked a question in words, you tend to want to answer it in words. That's our habit. And before he could open his mouth, his teacher hit him in the mouth, which is what they used to do in China in the old days. And the purpose of this was you know, not to punish him, but to challenge him to break through, to understand original mind and express it beyond concepts, beyond words, right? And he took up that challenge and sat with it and ultimately something triggered in him during a talk or at some other time and he said, I got it. And that time his teacher uh, approved him. So what intrigued me about this encounter was this image of black balls speeding through darkness. And in much of Buddhist teaching, darkness is negative it indicates delusion much of the time or confusion, right? 
and it's usually strongly contrasted with light, um, the light of wisdom, prajna, or the light of awareness, or the light of original mind, which is what Kazan and, and Tetsukikai were on about. The light that clearly illuminates and reflects everything equally without discrimination or confusion. So they seem to be in opposition. And we get that a lot, especially in the early teachings. And actually, this is you know pretty well expressed in the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, which we just chanted if you were here for, for, uh, <clears throat> for service, right? Um, and we call it a hymn, and we treat it as like a dedication, like we have our hands in uh, gasho when we're chanting it. Um, <clears throat> but it's actually a quote from the Prajnaparamita Sutra in 8,000 lines. <laughs> It's one of the teachings um, on Buddhist wisdom, which predates Zen. It's a foundational text for a Buddhist teaching. And the words that we just chanted a few minutes ago are spoken by Shariputra, who is one of the most important disciples of the Buddha himself. So this is represented as a presentation about wisdom, the perfection of wisdom, by one of Buddha's most eminent disciples. And I'll just repeat it now case you didn't get it when you chanted it before. <clears throat> Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, the perfection of wisdom gives light, unstained, which means undivided. One thing, unstained, the entire world cannot stain her. She is a source of light, and from everyone in the triple world, she removes darkness. There's that sense of opposition. Most excellent are her works. She brings light so that all fear and distress may be forsaken and disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion. <laughs> she herself is an organ of vision. She has a clear knowledge of the own being of all dharmas. Dharmas here, we can take this to mean phenomena, all things. For she does not stray away from it. She's not separated from it, from anything. The perfection of wisdom of the Buddhas sets in motion the wheel of Dharma, which is the unfolding of the teachings. And I'll come back to this at the end of the very end of the talk, but I just wanted you to hear it again because it is kind of a foundational idea. So about the light, and I'm going to quote Kazan again which is uh, in a different place um, where he, his own writings when he became a teacher. <clears throat> he says, when you encounter the skill of a spiritual teacher and not a single thought arises in you, this is when you see smoke. If you stop here and rest, it's like stopping at warmth. But if you continue on, you will see fire. This means knowing the one, the person, who does not give rise to a single thought. This is called the indestructible hidden body. The body is empty and bright. <clears throat> Learning the way is said to be apart from thought and consciousness. This is Kazan still talking. These must not be thought of as body and mind. There is still a wonderful brightness that is eternally unmoving. If you look carefully, you will certainly reach it. If you are able to clarify the mind, 
no body and mind can be found and no self and others can be involved. That's small self, right? Therefore, it is said, drop off body and mind. If you know Dogen, that's a familiar uh, expression. When you look, nothing is there. So he seems to be pointing at brightness and emptiness as kind of co-equal, right? Or maybe pointing to the same thing, what we call emptiness. Of course, the light is also referred to in our English word enlightenment. And this word indicates the waking up to reality that we all aspire to, even though we're not supposed to be grasping anything, right? That's what we really want, right? To impermanence as reality, to the interdependent emptiness <clears throat> of all things as reality. And in Sanskrit, this waking up is referred to as bodhi. And in Japanese, sometimes it's called satori. But it's an experience. It's not something you can think yourself into. In Zen, famously, we say it's beyond words and concepts, even though we use lots of words and we use lots of concepts like light and dark, <laughs> right? You know, sometimes we have an experience where we're reading some teaching or maybe listening to somebody talk and we think, oh, yeah, I understand. But awakening, which I prefer to the term enlightenment, as I said, it's really not about rational thought or understanding in this way. It's sometimes equated with nirvana, which is another Sanskrit term, which is the cessation of suffering and the ending of the cycle of rebirth, like blowing out a flame or cooling down something that is hot. And it also indicates stability and a kind of calming down, right? So stability and wisdom go together and there is a, a pointing at this uh, experience of emptiness, which is not a negative thing itself. It's the fullness of everything expressed as total interdependence where nothing exists without everything else. Okay, so I'm giving you a real quick primer on basic Buddhism for people who are new. Enlightenment though also contains in English the seed of another metaphor. And this is really critical to the rest of what I wanna to say today. Uh, which is used to kind of invoke what we sometimes call our true nature, our Buddha nature, our original mind. All these words are kind of pointing to the same thing. Um, our experience beyond our karmic experience or our, just our sensory experience and our small-minded ideas about ourselves and our place in the world, which is where do you put yourself in the world usually? How do you see yourself in the world? Somebody whispered it. <laughs> the center, right? Smack in the middle, okay? It's trying to liberate us from that place and that feeling that I am here in the middle of the world and everything relates to me and it's about me, right? As one of my teachers like to say, the movie that is directed by me, written by me, scored by me, and stars me. <laughs> So the metaphor that I'm talking about is the mirror, the mirror. Um, and this turns up frequently in our just everyday kind of Zen talk, like luminous mirror wisdom in one of the dedications we chanted today, right? This is again, the mind that reflects everything that appears in it or before it perfectly without preference and without judgment, things come and things go, right? without clinging, without judgment, and without rejecting. 
And this turns up in these phrases that we say every day. Um, and um, it's a kind of powerful metaphor. Mirrors are very ancient devices in many human cultures. They're, they're not necessarily modern things. And they're often made of metal. Right? And so when they're made of metal, polished metal, they're dark. So I'll come back to that too. But the silver mirrors that we're used to are not the mirrors that existed in China or Japan in the past. A mirror is itself cool and smooth, and it abides, ready to reflect. But if we look for this mirror, we can't locate it. Our mirror minds, where is that? And Kokio spoke about that extensively in his, uh, in his retreat. Um, Dogen, our main founder, writes a very long essay about this mirror, which he calls Kokyo, strangely enough, but it's not the Kokyo of our friend Kokyo Henkel. This is the ancient mirror, Ko ancient Kyo mirror. Um, so the ancient mirror, and there's lots of uh, very weird and interesting stuff in there about mirrors and their reflectivity. So I want to turn to understand this mirror a little differently than we often hear about it in uh, Chinese and um, Japanese Zen uh, to a scholar named David Hinton. How many of you have heard of David Hinton? A few of you Dharma geeks out there. Okay. Um, David Hinton is not a Zen teacher. He's a translator um, and a, a deeply learned student of Chinese thought and literature. Um, and he's especially uh, knowledgeable about Taoist thought. Um, and of course, Taoism is indigenous to China. It's pre-Zen, uh, and it had a, uh, it, it encountered Zen, and they merged and differentiated. And anyway, it's, it's a very complex history. And I don't know much about Taoism, so I'm going to rely on Hinton here. But I found this very interesting. This is a new, a relatively new book called China Root in case you find that you're interested in this. He says, the mirror in Taoist thought, so this is the, the existing system of thought, philosophy, and practice before Zen. He says, the mirror in Taoist thought is always there. Mind is already, already always a mirror. Right? So this is what Japanese Zen refers to as original enlightenment. We're all already enlightened. No matter how confused a state we are in, says Hinton, there is absolutely no separation between us and the mirror. Hence, we are always wholly what is passing through the mirror. We are wholly things just as they are occurring. So the mirror would seem to be static and just, you know, things appear and then they go away. But what Hinton is pointing to is a Taoist idea of this constant churn of becoming that appears in the mirror and that it is not separate from us. We are not merely reflecting it, but we are participating in it. Um, and he points to a term in Taoist and Chinese Zen, or Chan, which he translates as dark enigma. Dark enigma. And he calls it a linguistic darkness of no words, no concepts, and the creative or generative darkness out of which everything comes. So this is a completely different idea of darkness than what we get in this kind of duality of dark and light, right? Which I think is really interesting. And I think it has something to do with what Kazan's talking about. Um, so I'll return to Hinton in, in a little bit. 
So I want to say a few things about some phrases of Dogen that probably some of you at least are familiar with. Right. So for example, Genjo Koan, which we frequently chant, um, Dogen says, the experience of reality, this experience beyond words and concepts, he says, it's not like reflections in a mirror or the moon in the water. Right? He says it's not like that. So what does this warning mean? And uh, the Zen teacher Domio Burke says, well, if you think about the way we think of reflections, it's two-dimensional, right? It's a surface thing. Right? Things appear on the surface. Like the screen is another metaphor that's kind of a modern metaphor for, for mirror. And the people appearing in it have no three-dimensionality. Right? You're flat. You know, you're not me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right? But that's kind of how we think of mirrors, right? It's like we don't mistake that for ourselves. But that's really not what all this is, is pointing to, Taoist and, and I think properly understood Zen thought. Um, so Domio Burke says that if we act like a mirror, act like a mirror, like try to be a mirror, we may be very still, very clear. We might empty ourselves of self-concern and perceiving things in a very objective way. But she says, there's still a sense that there's an I that's observing, right? I am looking into the mirror or reflecting the universe that's out there, the universe of Zoom mirror. She says, although what we reflect may be beautiful and grand, like you folks, <laughs> it's only one side. It's just a reflective surface, like a mirror or water reflects one side of something. That's what Dogen is sort of warning against. Don't be like that. And so Domio suggests, in the moment of enlightenment or prajna, wisdom is enlightenment or awakening, she suggests we all participate in this reality together. And this reality includes unity <coughs> and difference at the same time. Right? So there's not this idea of everything is one, and then there's this paradox about, but there's so many things out there. All these people, all these cushions, right? all these pieces of paper, all these words. Right? These two things cannot be separated. In a moment of total concentration, when we intuit dharmas directly, that is, we meet things directly without any mediation, explanation, words, or concepts. She says, there is no sense of that I am reflecting or intuiting. That's a kind of check on your experience. As soon as we separate from it, we think, oh, I got something. <laughs> and then your teacher will hit you. <laughs> Not this one, but some teacher might hit you. All beings and things awaken with you, she says, through you and you through them. And she turns to another phrase from Genjo Koan's essay of Dogen. She says, he says, when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. So we are familiar with this with the moon, right? We know that the moon is, we know now in the modern world, the moon is reflecting the sun's light and the other side is dark. It's really hard to unthink that. <laughs> to understand this line, she quotes a very important Zen figure of the 19th and early 20th century named Nishiari Bokusan. And Nishiari Bokusan says this, he says, when we understand that the self and what we normally think of as some outer realm are not two, but one, 
He says, there is not a second person throughout heaven and earth, right? There is no other. There's only you. When we illuminate one side, the Dharma Datu, which is a term meaning the realm of the absolute, becomes one side. Right? So everything becomes this one side. The ten directions, which is everything everywhere, become dark and all collapse. This one side emerges, merges with all dharmas in darkness, and there is nothing left out. One dharma, one thing, comprehends all dharmas in darkness. So here, darkness is understood as non-differentiation. So the phrase, black balls speeding through darkness, what do you think it might mean? Or maybe you're thoroughly confused now. What would that mean? If darkness is not bad, if it's not delusion, if it's not obscuration, how is this a black ball speeding through darkness? So there's no separation between tea drinking and the drinker of the tea, right? I'm not saying that's what's going on right here, but that's an illustration. So all these references point to, in Dogen, right, as well, point to dark or darkness as what we sometimes call the absolute, right? The unity of everything in which distinctions are merged. They aren't visible. Light makes things visible. And we don't ignore what's visible. We don't ignore the, these phenomena. We don't stay in this darkness or in this non-differentiation. If we do that, we make a big mistake. So darkness, in this way of understanding, this experience of understanding, it doesn't oppose the light. The light doesn't vanquish this darkness. Right? And a poem that we're going to study during the uh, practice period the Sandokai, or the, which is sometimes translated as the merging of difference, differentiation, and unity, um, by a Chinese ancestor of ours named Sekito Kisin. Um, he says this, eye and sights, these are our senses, right? Eye and sights, ear and sounds, nose and smells, tongue and tastes, with each and everything depending on these roots, the leaves spread forth. And so, all differentiation, all phenomena emerge from this darkness, which sounds very Taoist according to the way Hinton talks about it. Trunk and branches share the essence, right? A tree has one trunk and then it branches out into the many leaves, the many, many branches. Revered and common, these are just distinctions that we make. Revered is one thing, common is another thing, right? Each has its speech, all of it is valuable. So these words are pointing to the relationship, the inseparability and dependence on each other of the absolute and the relative. And Sekito goes on to say this. So this again is this poem that we'll study from the eighth century, before, uh, well before Dogen, 500 years before Dogen. He says, in the light, there is darkness. So they're not separate, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark, there is light, but don't see it as light. He says something that's a little confusing. Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. Right? And at first that might sound like opposition again, right? 
they're not actually dependent on each other. It sounds like conflict. It sounds like duality. But what he's saying is they function together, right? If you don't have a front foot and a back foot, the back foot becomes the front foot, the, right? Like that. You need both to walk. And without two feet, without this identity of relative and absolute, there's no walking, there's no functioning, there's no tea drinking, there's no rice school. So as I wind further through this, and I'm getting closer to the end, um, I'd like to refer to the words of Dogen's Chinese teacher, his master, Ru Jing. And I like this quote because it points to our everyday experience, which is not sitting on the cushion, trying not to fall asleep, right? You know, But we are out there in the world with all of our senses, right? That's our normal everyday experience. And it's not separate from awakening. So here's what Ru Jing says. He also points to this collapsing of object and subject and, the, and, the, and also eliminates the sense organ to create this direct experiencing that is so often referred to in our uh, teacher's teaching. So this is from a sermon that's preserved to us. Um, not all of his uh, words have been translated, but Shohaka Okamura has translated this. And um, these words are orienting us to our everyday experience as the, as the gateway, but also the expression and the function of realization, of waking up, which is not separate from every day. This is what he says. He says, in day-to-day -day life, the six fields, which are the six sense organs and the six objects of sense organs, right, um, that work together as one thing, right, they bring us our experience. They become manifested, right? This is kind of common sense. He says, in the case of the eye, we call this function seeing. But, he says, we should gouge out our eyeballs right away <laughs> and let us be unable to see anything at all. After that, there is nothing we cannot see. And then we can say that we see. <laughs> but fortunately, we have Shohaka Okamura. He says, he's commenting on this particular teaching. He says, in the case of the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha saw the bright star. Do you know the story about the Buddha's awakening? He sits and sits and sits and sits under the tree, the Bodhi tree. And after many days and nights, he sees the morning star. And he awakens seeing the morning star. And he makes this great exclamation about I and all things together, you know, have achieved liberation. So this is how Okamura sees it. He says, in the case of Buddha's awakening, when the Buddha saw the bright star, he lost his eyeball. His eye was dropped off and only the bright star was there. The Buddha disappeared and became part of the entire world of the bright star. So the bright star is all phenomena, and the Buddha merged with all phenomena when he saw the bright star. This is what losing one's eyeball means, according to Okamura. On the other side, he goes on, we can say that when the bright star was dropped off, only the Buddha's eyeball remained. He's trying to say something about the intimacy, the intimate relationship between these two, what look like two things. 
there's an object, there's me, the observer, seeing the object through the sense of sight. Right? He's trying to collapse all of that. For Okamura, this is what is called seeing without seeing. Right? Seeing without seeing. Now, this is kind of strange and even horrible, right? Eyeballs falling out, ripping out your eyeballs, right? But this kind of understanding is pointing to how we merge difference and oneness and how we should respond to phenomenon, right? Eyes dropping off, yikes. So I want to wrap up this kind of meandering tour with um, one more thought from David Hinton and uh, one more quote from our teachers. So again, this is David Hinton. He says, or he suggests, that a person who is living from this realization of the oneness of all, and has experienced it in this way, right, where all things collapse into one, even our sense of self that we, where I am here looking out at you, there is no person looking out at some other person, right? The experience of that, not the not the imagination of it, not the image of it, but the experience of it. He says, if you're living from that realization of what he actually at one point in this book calls the dark enigma mirror, this is a person for whom our center, our identity center, right, from which we normally relate to everything, including ourselves, that is no longer the place where activity comes from. Right? The pers that person who has this consciousness, this mirror mind is enacting what in Zen we call emptiness, or maybe a better word is something like potentiality. To be free of self-concern and act freely. And Hinton relates this to the Taoist concept of Wu Wei, right? Which is sometimes translated as idleness, like not doing. But it's more profound than that. I think that's kind of a misunderstanding of it. You know. As Kazan said when he was pressed by his teacher, right, the time for tea and his drinking of tea are one thing, right? He's free from some outside idea of time to drink tea. It's time to drink tea, I drink tea. The mirror does not reflect static reality, even if the mirror mind is tranquil, right? The mirror mind is tranquil, but what's in it isn't necessarily tranquil, right? This is our experience. What Hinton says is, mind is not an empty spirit mirror. We're used to thinking of the mirror as not reality. He says it's not like that, as our Eastern assumptions might assume. But it's this generative absence or emptiness, a living generative tissue that is somehow mirror deep with awareness. So the mirror isn't flat. It isn't two-dimensional. It's deep and it's imbued with presence, our presence. And then he refers to a Chinese ancestor of ours, Hui Nang, a sixth century, uh, a sixth ancestor in China. And this is Hui Nang now, who says, "Empty mirror mind is the." Uh, this is Tintin's translation. The original <coughs> source tissue face. It's alive. This presence is alive. And according to Wei Nang, this face has been gazing out since the very beginning of things. It's the universe looking at itself in our awareness. So how could we be separate from it? 
Dogen includes the what we call the insentient in this kind of awareness. So there is a big discussion in, the, in our retreat about insentient and sentient, right? Sentient is us and animals and you know things that are alive. And insentient we usually think of as rocks, right? Something like that. Pebbles and uh, pebbles and fences, tiles and walls is what Dogen sometimes says. But here's what Dogen says in an essay called Plum Blossoms. He says, now the ancient Buddha's Dharma wheel is turned. This is like in the Hymn to Perfection of Wisdom, the Dharma wheel turns. It's turned to the remotest corners of the entire world. And this is the time for all human and heavenly beings to attain the way. And even clouds, rain, wind, and water. And for grasses, trees, and insects, there is nothing that does not receive a Dharma blessing from the ancient Buddha's understanding and expression. Heaven, the earth, and our homeland are turned by this Dharma wheel and function vigorously like jumping fish. So this vigorous, uh, we sometimes call it in Zazen, you know, we have this dynamic activity. That's what this is about. So, Cohen uh, Ajo, who is Dogen's direct descendant, gets the last word. Um, he wrote a long essay called the Komyo Zo Zamai, right? Which is the, the Komyo is again this uh, luminosity. Uh, Zo is a treasury, and Zamai is a practice or absorption. So one translation of this is uh, absorption in the treasury of light, and it's another long essay. Um, remember that. This Koenejo <clears throat> was Kazan's, <coughs> excuse me, Dharma grandfather. It's, we're, we're in the few generations right after the founding of Soto Zen. <coughs> excuse me. And in this Komyo Zo Zanmai, he quotes a Chinese master. <coughs> He says, great master Changsha said to the assembly, the whole world is reflected in this monk's eye. The whole world is contained in everyday talk. The whole world fills your body. The whole world is your own luminosity. Throughout the total field, all existence, the universe, there is no one who is not who you are. So homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, that brings light <coughs> and disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion. <coughs> but remember, <coughs> she is an organ of vision. She's an organ of vision, and she has a clear knowledge of the own being, we could say, the self-sufficiency, the unique reality that's in everything. She does not stray away from it. She does not stray away from you. Right? This is to understand dependent, co-arising, or interdependence in a radical way. We and all things are not just part of a seamless whole. We are the whole, and the whole is us. Thank you very much.
and chant the after chant in case people need to and then I'll take some questions. between light as an expression of interdependence and darkness as undifferentiated. And then that last kind of turning that she said where you talked about the, the understanding of interdependence as we are the whole and the whole is us. I was thinking about undifferentiated in a certain sense and that really kind of brought the light and the darkness together for me. Um, Thank God somebody understood what I was trying to say. <laughs> I said it better than I did. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I was just my question is just I was wondering, like from your center, like how you were, um, how you've grappled with that darkness and light. Because I remember at the beginning of the talk you said you were when you were Shuso, you were kind of grappling with that. Yeah, I, there's something about that image that really arrested me and and mystified me, but I was drawn to it, and I kind of. I, I felt myself sometimes like wanting to duck, like there are black balls speeding around, I can't see them, you know, what is this? Um, but I think as I kept reading and kept sitting and kept trying to understand this interplay of, you know, the teachings about the, the what we call the absolute and, you know, the, but the fact that we don't, all of our teachers like really admonish us about don't seek for a tranquility that excludes things. Right, because we talk about refuge, right, and we sit in stillness and, and silence, and we offer a place of safety. We try to. That's our, you know, that's our vow. And but we we're not escaping, right? It's a safe place to like confront the whole thing, in all of its terror and beauty and incomprehensibility. And so, right, you know, it's not about like sitting on your cushion and thinking, oh, finally I can just not think about anything. <clears throat> it's not about getting rid of thinking or getting rid of difficult emotions or finding bliss and staying there, right? And Hinton says this too, that, that you know, early Chan, Chinese Buddhism, really says you can't stay in what, you can't abide in one place. So we think of the mirror as a thing that's in a fixed place, right? And we wander past it and, you know, it reflects, but it's not like that. It's like always there. And it's as big as big can be. It has no dimensions. So it has no locations. It has no dimensions. You know. 
<clears throat> but I like the idea of darkness as this, uh, yeah, in the dark, everything is the same. And it scares us because we rely on our eyes to show us how to move, you know, where to go. Dogen talks about this too. It's like intimacy is reaching for a pillow in the night. You don't have to look, right? It's just there. <clears throat> or finding a path, trusting your feet without being able to see where you're going. You know? um, so I'm afraid of the dark. Uh, sometimes I'm, I test myself by like going upstairs without turning on lights, seeing, do I really know my way? Like, what can I trust? Echolocate like a bat. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's this interesting, you know, way of again. Un Hinton talks about Zen Chan's wrecking crew that goes through and like dismantles everything. It gets us so far, like where we see smoke, this in that one comment. But like if we stop there and think, ah, smoke, warmth, I can stop here. This must be it. It's like no, yanks the rug out from under you, right? Oh yeah, light and dark. Well, now it's dark, right? And it's only dark. The light of presence is the other side of it. Yes, collapsing all concepts, getting rid of all words, just experience. <clears throat> yes. Um, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, a beautiful, uh, wise talk. I knew a lot of these concepts. <laughs> Um, but so am I. I <laughs> just finished reading a book, uh, Siddhartha, and actually the part that struck me the most was when you spoke about um, the non-duality between good and evil and light and dark, which happened to be exactly what you spoke about today. And, uh, so it's just really bizarre, but also really amazing that that I just happened. To, I've never been to one of these things before, and it's the topic you chose to spoke about, speak about. Um, so just very beautiful, and I just really appreciate it. You know, it's also important not to think that because of, you know, everything has this relativity, because there's dark, there's light, right? Because there's good, there's evil, <clears throat> means that it doesn't matter what you do, or that there is no such thing as evil, right? There is no such thing as good and bad. It, it, it's, that's a trap, too, because we live in the world of the relative, right? So we have to find a way of understanding both together. Right? And that's why we also can't, we can't just dwell in the absolute and say, oh, nothing matters, right? You know, it's all good, or it's all bad, or it's all just kind of like blankness. You know, if we just sort of dwell in this uh, quiescent peacefulness, then it's not really unity. It's just, you know, escape. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Siddhartha, Siddhartha, who became Buddha, was onto something. <laughs> Still talking about it. Yes. I also echo just thanks. Um, and I, when you were talking about light and dark, I mean, one of the things that I always grapple with is race, actually. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about our connotations, at least here in the US, you know, of black, you know not good, even worse, right? White good and white superior and light, right? So, you know, how, it's it's I, it's really interesting to me and I have no answers, but just questions about like, what do all these teachings, what does the Dharma mean in terms of light and dark community, you know, and on foot on the ground, you know, on the cushion of how we work together and dismantle racism and un unlearn, you know, these connotations that, that we have, so. Yeah. 
all categories are yeah. are made up by us. Yes. Right. And um, so that's you know that's delusion right there. There's a new book which I haven't read and I hesitate to say anything about because I haven't read it and I'm not exactly sure what her teaching is. But um, there's an African American. <clears throat> teacher in our San Francisco Zen Center lineage who just cranks out books. I don't know how she does it. She's very uh, prolific. Her name is Zenju, mm -hmm. Earthling Manual. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think every year at least she seems to produce a new book. And the current one, I can't remember the exact title, but it's about darkness. Mm -hmm. And she's entering it from the point of view in, in part of being a, a person of color, a black woman who merges different uh, practices. She's a Zen teacher, but she also calls upon African beliefs, <clears throat> and she's experienced, you know, racism directly in this country, uh, gender discrimination, to really very difficult experiences. Um, but this book is it enters through a mm -hmm. Japanese figure uh, who is who has black skin and is a terrifying kind of demon figure <clears throat> um, who immediately evokes a kind of you know, fearfulness. But she's looking at it from the point of view of this kind of generative, like darkness is a, a, a productive thing. And then she turns to what I'm going to call voodoo, you know, African, more African uh, systems of, of thought and understanding with, I think, seven different figures. Um, that embody somehow aspects of this darkness that she wants us to face and benefit from. She sees it as beneficial. So if you're interested in how she <clears throat> grapples with this and asks us to think about it, new ways of thinking about dark as a concept, that might be a place to go. Thank you. Is that the Shamanic Bones book? No, that's the book before that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, another one. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shambhala, I think. Somebody's online. Yeah. I uh, know. Back here, uh, Chard says it. Oh. I'm speaking to you from the darkness because I can't see you. <laughs> 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 Uh, so, uh, so, I, so normally cons really confuse me, but the one that you introduced in the beginning I liked a lot. And one thing that really came through, so I'm just going to throw this out there to see uh, if it makes any sense to you. Uh, so indeed, the black sphere, the black ball, the hurtling yeah. through blackness, darkness, uh, and then what's the difference between the two? But you can look at it either as the one thing going through the other, or the other thing going through the one, or the two going through each other, or whatever. But no matter which way you look at it, the one thing that always keeps coming through is this um, two-way uh, two reciprocal co-action, uh, and that seems to what seems to be what arises, uh, independent of what you decide to call one thing or the other. Uh, and so, uh, uh, this, uh, the fact that this sort of bubbles out of this, um, you know, uh, sort of collapse uh, and just. Uh, uh, that there's always going to be this uh, mutual uh, action. Uh, is that sort of what we can take with us from this darkness uh, every time we interact with others? Yeah, <clears throat> interacting with so-called others is like a, that's one of the things about, you know, this mirror awareness that, that doesn't discriminate, that doesn't reject, right, that, you know, is, is accepts everything without distortion. That's not our general experience when we start talking. Right. <laughs> when we start talking, and it has to do with our immediate, you know, kind of formation of 
opinions, like based on what we see and what we hear, right? immediately our judging small minds intervene. And it's based often on our karma, right? Our, like, oh, this person, our previous experience with that person or with somebody like that person or our fears about that person or our hopes about that person, which then get dashed, you know, all that stuff. <clears throat> I think that the, in some ways, this, the way this practice is presented through Taoism, it's kind of a solitary practice, right? These are hermits off in the woods, and they're like, I think I'll have a cup of tea, right? <laughs> I think I'll eat some rice gruel now without thinking. You know, they're not thinking, they're just like rice gruel, and they eat rice gruel. <clears throat> and they meet rice gruel directly, and it's a lot harder when you're in a room full of people, right? Because those people have their ideas, and um, yeah, we, we frequently trip up. So the I don't know that people are the black balls, you know, flying through space, undifferentiated, undifferentiated space. But maybe there's something in there where we can see an, an apparent other as self, right? Not different. And when they present us with a challenge or a difficulty, we can try to find a response that's out of that non-differentiation, right? And accept that we're going to be maybe misunderstood or we're not going to meet the mark exactly, but we can start from the place of, this is me. You are all me, right? That's the teaching, right? And I am whatever, I'm also part of that. Right? So what would life be if we were acting from that? And if we could share that, right? This is part of the function of Sangha is to arouse that kind of aspiration together you know and then maybe bring it out beyond the zendo yes yes uh, just the connection between buddhism and taoism um, there's a philosopher charles Zhu that says yes. that when one person thinks that a is right and b is wrong and the other thinks the opposite look to the space above right and wrong yeah, it's it. We this is how we understand our experience, right? We immediately move to categorize things. Right? Yeah. yeah. If this is you know, it's not a long book, and it's organized um, according to sort of basic foundational uh, characters and concepts behind them, many of which for Zen people will be familiar. So like meditation, empty mind. Dharma, Buddha, enlightenment, I, and they're short, kind of pithy, and they're uh, just remember he's not a Buddhist practitioner, and he has a thing. He's kind of a, a I would say, a Chinese chauvinist. <laughs> he actually, he actually says that the that some of the Japanese moves that we're really used to, like the character Mu, which we usually translate as emptiness or no or nothing, turns up in koans or anything. He says that to, to translate that as emptiness is a kind of act of, it's it's wrong and it's an act of cultural appropriation by the Japanese, which is a big move, right, to make. So, you know, he's really pushing the Chinese, the originality of Chinese thought to the front and you can drop some of the critique, I think, that he makes of our Zen practice and find what is interesting it out and see if it helps to understand some of our teaching. Yeah. This is called 
Taoism, the subtitle is Taoism, Chan, and Original Zen. Anybody online? Uh, I'm going long, so I'm going to... Karen. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was just going to add to what you said, Charo, and I think you've mentioned this following point before, too, um, about that book. Um, I think it's a really interesting book and worth reading. Um, and and I'm not an expert on you know Zen scholarship or Buddhism or anything, but I did notice when I was reading it last year, I was taking a class from Kokyo, um, and it was really about um, the ancient... Chinese practitioners during that whole time we're talking about um, and how they used and looked at and interpreted a lot of the Indian sutras, Buddhist sutras. And um, Hinton never mentions a single sutra. And these were a huge, you know, intellectual and, and philosophical thing that um, Chinese Zen Buddhists, Chan Buddhists were looking at during, during these centuries. And um, so... So I just want to say, you have to think about that while you're reading this book, that there's whole realms of Buddhist thought that were happening that he doesn't mention. And um, so I think his wonderful points about Taoism and its influence are really good. Yeah. Um, but the idea of this thesis that somehow, you know, Zen isn't really even Buddhism or that kind of thing, you really have to have to really kind of hesitate on that one. It's, yeah, I thought there's a sentence I was looking for in here, which I won't, I, I'm not going to find it. I'm not going to take the time to find it. But he, he refers to Indian Buddhism as almost like this foreign thing. Yeah. And it's like, it's Buddhism, right? We have Buddha, it was Indian, right? The, <laughs> the mind of the great sage of India is intimately transmitted from west to east. What if it's not hidden, right? You know, this is not like some hidden thing. And in his appendix, in which he really kind of personally attacks a lot of scholars of Japanese, American, you know, everybody working on this stuff in translation. Um, he calls it lost in translation. And, and it's like a double-edged sword, right? It's not just the meaning lost in translation, but the people have totally misunderstood, you know, what this is all about because they're lost in their mistranslations of these concepts. So that's the part you have to kind of like, I had to put this down for about a year because it made me so mad, <laughs> and then return to it to see what I could, you know, actually get out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you.